Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors. And today I've got a very special guest in Tim Brown. Now, Tim is a military man, former of the cavalry in the Australian Army. And we talked to him about how his obsession with property grew to the point that he was actually researching property whilst on deployment. We talked to him about pleasure delaying and giving up on some of the things that you can purchase, perhaps if you're on a good wicket or in the mines or on deployment where you can't spend too much money so that you can actually achieve those long-term goals and utilising that money to make sure that you're not relying on superannuation in retirement. He's got some great advice and we hear about his story from buying his first property all the way to owning seven properties. And my big takeaway from this one is when he talks about emotions in buying a property. We're taught not to be emotional when we're buying an investment property, but Tim has an interesting take to say that emotions are part of the process and there's a way to use those emotions to help you get to where you want to go. It's a fantastic interview with Tim, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. Here's Tim. Tim Brown, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. No worries, Mike. Thanks for having me on. I've uh, been looking forward to this chat ever since I uh, learned that you were in the cavalry, and I th- that, that kind of makes me chuckle a little bit because it sort of harkens back to the you know the on the horseback sort of stuff. But the modern military does still have a ca- cavalry. Uh, I assume they know horses. No, we've moved away from the horses. Now we're operating within armored fighting vehicles. Um, which are, yeah, a lot more modern, although they're slowly getting upgraded, which is great. But same culture, um, and we try and keep that history alive from our light horse brethren. Yeah, it's a real rich history. It's um, pretty amazing, uh, the military history that we've got in Australia for a, a fairly uh, fairly new country. But talk to us about your background. So obviously we've, we've mentioned the cavalry, but um, how did you get into the, the, the military? How did you sort of start and what made you want to go into that line of work? Of course, military was um, always in my brain. It was always an ambition of mine. Um, everyone, I was little, always playing armies with um, the boys or my dad or my brother. Uh, and that just came to fruition when I got to that age um, where I was able to actually enlist and join the army. So that I can't remember a time where I didn't want to join. Um, I had a really big sense of uh, pride for the country and I really wanted to do my part and that was serving for me, serving in the military, um, being outdoors and getting physical as well, which was quite um, attractive to myself. So I joined at 22. I tried to get in earlier, but I had a few a new, few knockbacks. Um, it was competitive time when I was trying to get in, and they said just grow up a bit and come back. Um, so I was patient enough to wait for the cavalry, which I really wanted. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I jumped in and embraced it. Yeah, awesome. Now, uh Whilst you were actually on deployment, so you were sent overseas to to Iraq, you 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 developed a bit of a, a passion for property. Um, and I, as I understand, you were sort of trolling through some of the the property literature and property mags. Actually, whilst you were, what do they say, in country? Yeah, correct. There's a few things on deployment, on tour, whatever it is. But um, that's right. In 2016, I deployed to Iraq. Um, it was a training and assistance mission. Uh, wasn't as kinetic in terms of combat as they've seen in the previous years. So um, I was over there as part of the security detachment to be able to uh, support our training teams 
and I had a bit of time off in between any tasks or whatnot. Um, and if I wasn't training in the gym or something like that, there's not much else to do in a country like that when you're not on a mission or on task. So um, I had this kind of burning desire forever to do something different with myself. I'm very much, uh, I, I don't like the idea of the nine to five and committing happily to working for the rest of my life or to 65, 70 where I retire and use my super. That just goes against the grain for me. Um, and so I was in army. I knew I wanted to get out at some point and I was trying to rack my brain of how do I do something different that can support myself to to build a life that I want for my family and the people around me where I'm not a slave to the income. I'm not attached to earning income. How do I create passive income? So I just scoured the internet um, looking for how, how do you how do you do that when you're in a government wage? You know, because obviously a lot of people can do that once they build successful businesses um, yeah. and they support themselves in the income and put it in the right places to grow. But I'm thinking I'm, I'm about on 70, 75 grand at the time and, and that's a capped wage and how do I save? How do I save? It was very difficult. Um, so every spare moment I had, I started looking up and I landed on property and I started researching why property is the best and there's a thousand pieces of literature out there about it and all these different strategies and all these different experts. So it was so, it was really overwhelming at the start and even the terminology was quite difficult to get my head around. It's like this whole new world. And so I read a few books and I read a few things online and I actually paused and went, I just don't understand what they're saying. So the first thing I actually did was create a glossary of words and meanings and, you know, including LVR and all this sort of stuff. And I just learned it. And I just learned what those things are, learned, learned what interest rates were, learned what um, all these little property terms mean. And then once I understood that, I just started consuming so much information about property. What what led you to, to that? Do you think because because we're talking back in two thousand and sixteen, you would have been in your what early to mid twenties. There was yeah. something sort of wired a little bit differently that's that's got you thinking about your retirement. I mean, how how many blokes in the military uh, that are on deployment are thinking about? Gee, I I, I don't want to. I'm not sure if I want to be on the hamster wheel when I'm you know sixty years old. Yeah, it's, it's a cool question. I actually, I think I stumbled across the future thinking just by my way of thinking now. I'm a very deep thinker. I'm you know, philosophical and I just think about things really, really deeply. Sometimes I go into a stare where my brain's just churning information and I, like, I can't even physically do anything because I'm just thinking about stuff. And I used to think, wow, people just go to work nine to five, this kind of excitement during the weekend and then people crash in their moods during the week because most people don't like their jobs. And I was really thinking about that deeply and thought, this is wrong. Like this just doesn't sit well with me. Why do people do this? And obviously I get that you have to earn income to be able to support your life and look after kids and feed yourself and et cetera. And it's all part of this working beast that, you know, the modern world is basically everyone does their part. But for me, I thought, I don't want to do that. I really want to escape that rat race and have the freedom and opportunities to do what I like with my family, spend time, enjoy experiences in life and travel, et cetera. And um, that's why I thought, okay, I need to do something different. And then I started thinking about my future all the way out to retirement. And that, that's basically how it came about. I think there's a bit of a sort of a cautionary tale for young people, I think, in this that, you know, you might be on a reasonable wicket. You know, you think of the the quintessential 
blokes that are chasing the money going into the mines. I mean, when you're on, do, uh, on a deployment, you can't sort of go to the Apple store and buy yourself an iPhone or an iPad, right? You, you've got a, f a fair chunk of change waiting for when you get back. But most of your mates were then, you know, buying the SS Utes or the jet skis or the, all that sort of stuff. Like, how did you, you know, how did you sort of negotiate the fact that I, I, I'm pleasure delaying here? And yeah, they look like they're having a little bit more fun, but I'm playing the long game. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's the, that delayed gratification that really set in for me thinking, okay, ha if I put my money in certain places now, I'll reap the benefits later, but I'm going to compromise that now with not buying all those nice toys. And at the time, I actually had a, a nice car. I had an SS, um, you know, Commodore and all that stuff. And that was like, great. So when I got back, um, I had that still and I sold it. I just kind of sold down depreciating assets and I knew that my money can work for me in different places than being a burden to me, a liability to me. So that was the kind of mindset I adopted. I need money to work for me, not me work for money. Um, so obviously everyone else does what they want with their money and that's totally cool. But for me, I tried to like push that aside and build a bigger picture. So I'd actually already started building a property, me and my partner, as a owner occupy house before I left. Um, so we were drained of any cash apart from the, the money I was making on the deployment. And I was just like, okay, cool. This money is going into an investment property. You got to start saving here and stuff. So a bit of it was going back into the property we just built. So it wasn't this huge chunk of change, but the mindset switched over there. And that's when I knew something had to be done differently. So you got the the owner OC property. How, how did you sort of launch into that first investment property? And, and can you tell us about that and how that sort of kicked off the journey for you? The first investment was was a you know a, a really hard one to get because it was that savings plan that had to be really implemented, um, mm. and that took about three years. So I knew I had a goal, and I knew that about the $60,000 mark was going to be a good way to get into an investment property without waiting much more years to get in when the market is is moving basically. So that was kind of my sweet spot, I believed. Yep. So I just pretty much set up a really disciplined, structured system within my money, um, not just a budget because a budget's kind of looking in the rear view. I really wanted to set a system and automate that so I knew as my cash came in, it was all allocated to do a specific job, pay bills, um, pay myself, pay savings or what it was to build the deposit um, and then just be really ruthlessly disciplined with that because I had a goal and a date that I wanted to get to X amount of deposit and then that's just the way it worked. I just waited and just put those pennies away, automated the whole system and I just let it do its thing. Yeah. We talked off camera about this sort of the cliches between uh, people with a military background and then applying it to the new thing, you know, like a military guide to, to saving or a military guide to investing in property. But there was, there is a parallel there, right? There's, there's, it takes a tremendous amount of planning and discipline. And I think those are probably two values of, of the military, right? So you were able to, to utilize that skill set in some way. Yeah, for sure. I think naturally it came about like that, but I didn't at the time. I didn't consciously think about it like that. I just, um, I just had I just created a plan for the goal I had, and then implemented it with the discipline that I had built over time, especially because of my military career. Yeah. Um, 
And one of the big points for me was to not work off motivation because I know every now and again people go, that's it, I'm doing this, I'm feeling really pumped about saving money or having a new diet or whatever it is. But if you're operating off motivation, that just wanes. So it's, it's, not, yeah. it's not reliable. So to, to work on motivation is crap, to be honest, and excuse yeah. your language. So discipline is where the freedom really comes from because you build those systems, put those processes in place, and you see that plan come to fruition. And not only is it satisfying, but you actually get the reward at the end. That's a really good, that's an interesting insight. And we can say crap on this show. I'm okay. Okay, good. <laughs> um, I, you know, I've always kind of thought, imagine if you could kind of short sell uh, on the people that sort of have just left, say, an Anthony Robbins uh, seminar, right? Like, because um, whether you're a fan or not, like, you couldn't fault his ability to have people sort of leaving there going, yes, right? But it wanes, right? You know, that, that can't last forever. So there's got to be something driving you that's a little bit more than the how I'm fearing in the, feeling in the here and now. And you're talking about, you know, maybe a 30 or 40-year timeline. Let's talk about um, how you went from that particular one because you're now at the point where you're up to seven properties, is that right? That's correct, yeah. So was it a, a saving strategy that enabled you to get into the second and the third or did you see equity growth in your own rock or the investment property that helped to push that along? Because, you know, we, we, we're always kind of talking about how the first one is the hardest one to get into and I think you've sort of explained that with the, you know, the three-year sort of saving plan. Did, did you find it harder or easier to get into that second and the third one? The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. Yeah, very much so. And and the truth is, like you said, the first one is very hard. Um, it takes a lot of change personally and a lot of growth personally with your behaviours, with money, your mindset um, and, and your discipline and resilience throughout that process if you're saving a deposit for years, yeah. um, like, like you said. So that's the hardest part. I think it's probably the biggest barrier why a lot of people don't actually do it. Um, but once I had that first one, it was a combination of both maintaining that discipline money system with the money organization and also pulling out and extracting any equity that was available within the property i had to then go and deploy that into another asset that's going to do the same thing and provide that for me and i adopted a real cash flow positive or neutral strategy that allowed me to continue to do that at the time particularly before lending is now so tight um so i was quite lucky in that and it this strategy also included buying um, villas and townhouses and units where my cash flow on the capped income was able to service those type of properties, but I was still pushing myself into the market. Mm. And and just in thinking about that, because I think it's so important to get that first investment property right. Had you have gone straight out of the gates in in perhaps um, a higher priced property with a lower yield, how do you think that would have affected your trajectory to now? Would you likely only have that one investment property or do you think with, with some capital growth you might have got to three or four? When you're looking back, are there things you would have done differently? Yeah, the 
the capital growth probably would have still been there for the first property, even if I did um, what you said with that the the lower yield property, just because of the way the last two years have seen growth th- yeah. phenomenally throughout the country, right? But it, it's probably not sustainable because if we don't have the cash flow to allow us to service or in really to not drain our lifestyle so we have sustainability within the portfolio building, then you're not going to maintain or be at a scale. So I don't think I'd change too much. The one thing I probably would change is going right back to my first principal place of residence. I'd probably yeah. try to capitalise on that being turned into an investment later on because we have done that with our property. But I probably could have bought better that first one. But I did that prior to delving into property research and really starting to understand how it all works. So I don't really regret it. It's still done really, really well. And if that is my mistake in property, then I'm pretty happy and pretty well off because a lot of people learn harsh lessons. Oh, yeah. And it's probably a benefit of how much I consumed, how much information I consumed. And I, I'm a very big believer in failing because it makes you learn. So I was trying to be really conscious and absorb everybody else's failures so as much as i was looking through content of success how to be successful i'm also looking about where do people stuff up where do people go wrong what stopped people here there and all those different points in their time because i could try and absorb that and adopt my strategy for my position yeah i think that's that's clever and those are the types of interviews that i like to to look for i mean there's there's two major ones. One is I wasn't on 300 grand a year and I started becoming a property investor because no one wants to hear someone that's, you know, on close to half a million dollars going, now I've got yeah. 10 properties. Well, of course you do. Of course <laughs> you do. Right? And, and, uh, and, and then, you know, I, I just think um, the, the income is, is, is one. And then, you know, like I bought my first property and it went up 400% in 12 months. Okay. Well, obviously that was kind of your, your launching pad. So if you can get people to say, look, I, I now have this portfolio, but I probably would have had twice the size because the first one I bought wrong. I mean, those cautionary tales, you can learn as much as, as you can on the, you know, the, the magazine stories about all the, the success and those sorts of things. Right. Yeah. Yeah, ex- exactly right. And and you see those people with the big incomes, It's they can do it, but it's not relatable to people. It's not relatable to the everyday person. And I think that's why um, I guess some people are connecting with me lately because they go, oh, it's just a normal guy on a pretty normal wage government capped income and he's able to still do something because there's so many limiting barriers in people's mindsets that they don't even realise they have. And on the opposite, there's so many people out there on amazing incomes and they don't understand the opportunity that they have and they kind of live these really um, great lifestyles but they're not actually creating wealth for themselves. So this it's almost like a false sense of success when really as soon as they stop working, so does the income. Yeah. I mean, we've had other guests on the podcast that work with high net individuals that are saying, you know, there's a there's a magistrate that's on 400 grand a year, but uh, if he lost his job after about 45 days, he'd be in real dire straits, you know, because the lifestyle mm. just ratchets up. So uh, it can happen to anyone on any income that they're not just preparing for the future. Now, you mentioned people getting in touch with you. You started a buyer's agency business. Uh, what made you want to do that or was it sort of by virtue of the people coming and saying, Tim, you know, you've been kicking some goals, I'll have what you're having? Yeah, it's a bit of both I reckon because I kept my investing quite quiet. There was only a handful of people that actually knew what I was doing. 
Yeah. And I tactfully did that because one of the lessons I learned through the the you know information I consumed was your circle of influence and people around you and people you don't know will influence you and provide you their opinion whether it's asked for or not um, and people who don't have what you want giving you advice. Um, so I just try, I thought I'm going to avoid that altogether and I'm just not going to tell anyone what I'm doing. So I just built the portfolio quite in science. So it's only recently that um, I'm thinking – I'm, I'm obsessed with this now. It's just kind of perpetuated and the whole process of pulling equity out, extracting is what, what I can and then putting it into another asset that's providing cash flow. And when that happens, it's like something clicks in your brain like this This is it. This is how you do it. This is how you, you change your earned income to passive income. That's that transfer. So I became solely focused on only working to support my investing. That's how I look at it now rather than working for my life and then I've um, just got an investment portfolio on the side. So I was super passionate about it, and I believe once I started talking a bit more openly about it to my inner circle and beyond, they saw that passion and a few people came to me and I would love chatting to them about it. And then I thought, I've got to do this as a job because I started rocking up to my employment and being sad when I have to take the property podcast out my ear and have to do normal work. And I thought, I think that's a telling sign for me that I'm due for a switch. And yeah. so, yeah, I started the, the um, buyer's agency. Yeah, awesome. And one of your sort of pet subjects or let's say one of your skill sets, and again, with this we might be sort of delving into uh, a military cliche, but this will be the last one. Um, okay. Emotions around the buying process. I mean, we're, we're taught not to be uh, emotional, but, you know, it, that's a difficult thing for a lot of people because, you know, the stats are sort of saying that, that people are wanting to buy relatively close to where they live or their mindset can't sort of adopt something that they wouldn't uh, live in as an investment. What, what would you say to people that uh, are embarking on their property investment journey and you think need a, a, a little bit of a pep talk, talk around keeping the emotion out of the strategy. Yeah, I, I have a big belief on this one and it's it's very common for anyone who's investing or in business to say, don't be emotional, take emotions out of it, which is cool to say and it actually makes sense and it's the right thing to do. However, to deny the human emotion around something, particularly when it's such a big deal to somebody in terms of amount of money they're putting forward and the risks that they perceive, etc., it's just not going to happen. You're not going to deny emotions. Like, good luck. You know, that's just that. That's a human nature, right? So yeah. I try to take on a philosophy of redirecting the emotion, right? So I like to direct the emotion and attach it to the journey of the portfolio of the investing and attaching it to the outcome that it's going to provide you, which whatever that is for that person, whatever that person's why is, you know, the freedom and the time and the not working or the private schools or the holidays, whatever it is, be emotional about that. Let yourself be emotional about that. That's great. That You should be. Feel it. But when it comes down to the strategy, the decision-making, it's got to be business. It's got to be a, a completely emotionless business decision about the numbers. And if the numbers are working, then you're buying it and you're making that fit as a little chess piece, as a little piece in the puzzle for that journey that you've attached emotion to. I really like that because, you know, we we are, as I mentioned, we, we are taught not to be emotional. So it's like, this is an investment property. Don't be emotional. You're saying be emotional, but 
but point that emotion at the outcome, right? And then you sort of, you will look more critically, does this investment property purchase get me closer to that outcome, which I am and I'm allowed to be emotional about? I think that's great advice. Yeah, I think it's the best way because you're not going to change the, the feelings that come up. So it's just, it's got to be directed somewhere. So if you're trying to deny it, then yeah, you're probably going to run into problems and, and people are going to explode or some people will. Yeah, awesome. And how do people get in touch with you, Tim, if they're wanting to chat about their emotions? Yeah, well, I have the website, www.thecharlestongroup.com.au or the Facebook and the Instagram on the same name. And, um, yeah, reach out to book a discovery call if you want. We can have a chat and see what your position is because I'm really – I fully get so much value out of helping people because I know that it can be done. So I'm, I'm really eager to help others. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on the success and thanks for the, the service in the military as well. I think that's important to say. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Mike. Appreciate you having me on. It's great. Cheers. Cheers.